0: You're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And this is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm joined today by co-host Dr. Daniel Petrasic for a special news recap discussion on the subject of extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis and the case of patient Andrew Speaker. Dr. Petrasik, good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. On this subject today, we're speaking with Dr. Andrew Pavia. Dr. Pavia is the chair of the National and Global Public Health Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. He's also professor and chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah Health Sciences Center. Dr. Pavia, welcome to our program. Glad to be with you. Today I was thinking that we could move a little bit into the epidemiology of XDR-TB, the public health systems in place, and the response in this case uh, of Andrew speaker. Dr. Petrasik, I know that you have some questions regarding the epidemiology. Would you like to proceed?
1: Sure, you know, and I think this is, we could certainly frame the question with respect to this special case of the, the tuberculosis, but I think it's a broader question, and I guess what, what I'm asking is, As a society, we're vulnerable to, you know, attacks from viruses and bacteria all the time, and it certainly gets the public's attention. For example, the SARS epidemic that uh, we experienced a few years back, and then we were watching with a lot of enthusiasm as it traveled from Hong Kong to all the way to Toronto and so forth. What sort of lessons did we learn from that, and what's really in place for for our protection? Well, probably the
2: most important thing you brought up is that we really have to look at each of these incidents and try and learn the lessons well and be ready with them, but then every new disease poses different kinds of challenges. There were a lot of successes with SARS that we want to use in preparation for bird flu and XDRTB. tb uh, One phenomenal area of success was in the basic science. Labs worked together throughout the world and communicated overnight via the internet and were able to move much more quickly than through the traditional methods and, and they really got around the competition that would normally slow things down. Another thing that I think we really saw in SARS is the vulnerability due to air travel, the ability of people to travel much more quickly around the world than we had ever anticipated in our history, but also the fact that we were fairly helpless at screening in the airport. A lot was done to try and screen in the airport, and it proved ineffective. On the other hand, what we did learn that was good was that basic infection control really seemed to work well. When patients were identified early and put in isolation and healthcare givers gave attention to the basic methods of protection, those patients didn't transmit any farther and that represented a dead end for the epidemic. So that kind of basic things that we've been doing for 100 years when done well and quickly really could work. If you look at anthrax, we learned some lessons there that were very interesting too. One of them was that we went into that with some assumptions from naturally occurring anthrax that didn't turn out to be right about how easily it was transmitted or about which drugs might work. And luckily, very fast and insightful epidemiologic investigation as things were happening helped us correct things as we went. So we learned not to Trust our old assumptions.
0: And it sounds like, you know, we have, from what you're telling us, really great responsive systems in place uh, when it comes to a number of these epidemic or pandemic scares. But a question that I have is are the preventative measures good enough at this point. I know that it has been commented before that the federal TB control budget has been underfunded and has even been reduced by upwards of 15%. Would you say that we're dealing with mainly post hoc kind of responsive uh, measures when it comes to these world scares? Or do we actually really invest in the preventive nature?
2: I think we have traditionally been better at and invested more in detection and control, which really is part of control. So surveillance to find diseases when they occur and to respond quickly, and in some ways that's the right answer because if you don't know what's coming, the best thing you can do is to be very alert and to look for it. But I think that we don't do as well in terms of setting up systems in advance, whether it's the international health regulations, that would allow better communication between countries when somebody with a communicable disease is traveling, say, on an airliner, as in this case, whether it's trying to get good laboratories and good surveillance systems into countries with fewer resources, or whether it's investing in drugs and other interventions in advance, we tend to do things in reaction, I believe, more than we do in preparation. But that, that's kind of the nature of our society, I think.
1: You know, you mentioned something about anthrax, and you can't help but consider how interrelated, for example, a just a naturally occurring ep- epidemic is with bioterrorism. It seems that some of the same sorts of measures that we have to implement to protect against a let's say a bacteriological attack would have to sort of coincide with just our natural you know response to an epidemic. Should things be addressed? so they would work together with, let's say, Homeland Security or share information in such a way that would benefit the public?
2: Absolutely. I think a watchword for people at NIH and CDC from the top down has been that the best preparation for bioterrorism is the same preparation that helps us for naturally occurring epidemics. That hasn't always been an easy sell to policymakers who... Get excited about political threats more than natural threats, and I think that the more we can integrate the systems, the more we realize that it 's the same system that helps us detect an unexpected terrorist threat is the same system that 's going to detect a novel strain of flu or a new virus like West Nile making it across the Atlantic or the emergence of an old organism with new tricks like XDRTB, the more we realize that, the more we're going to be able to have effective systems and to do it at a reasonable cost. And
0: really be protected. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reach MD on XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host, joined by co host Dr. Daniel Petrasic. And we're speaking to Dr. Andrew Pavia, who is the chair of the National and Global Public Health Committee for the IDSA and a professor and chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah. Our topic today is extensive drug-resistant TB and the case of patient Andrew Speaker. Since we're kind of bringing it back to the XDR-TB, a question that obviously comes to mind, which we've probably been skirting around here, is whether you believe that these systems that were in place to deal with this situation were adequate regarding the case of Andrew Speaker. What are your thoughts on that?
2: It appears we have a lot of steps where things could have been done better, from giving a clear message to Mr. Speaker that he must not travel, to perhaps diagnosing the XDR-TB more quickly, and being able to make a more definitive statement early, to effectively using the no-fly tools and the border control tools. I think what's really important, as we were talking about earlier, is that we get all the facts. We go back and look very carefully, learn the lessons, and go back and fix the things that need to be fixed rather than jumping to conclusions.
1: I have a clinical question to ask you. Given that we know Mr. Speaker has now, what what was the general likelihood that the um, folks traveling on the airplane with him could actually contract tuberculosis? Well, the simplest
2: answer is it's very low but not zero. He had culture-positive but smear-negative TB. So that is a very low transmissibility but not zero. There have been cases where people who are smear-negative but culture-positive transmit. And then we go to the question of how dangerous it is to be on an airplane with somebody with TB, and we've got the results of I think it's about a dozen investigations throughout the world over time of patients with infectious TB on airliners. In many cases, there was no transmission at all. In a few cases, there was transmission, and it tended to occur when the flights were over eight hours. It tended to occur to people in a very close range around the traveler or, in the case of a crew member, to the crew members who spent a really long time with them. And it tended to occur when the patient was very infectious with highly smear positive TB and an active cough, for example. So all those things are reassuring, and it's likely, and certainly we hope that no one was infected by Mr. Speaker, but I don't think you can ignore the possibility that it could happen.
0: I know that the general... A word that has been circulating around at least as of late was the term reckless when it came to his deciding to travel back uh, immediately after receiving word while out in Europe about the severity of his condition. But a question that comes to mind for me is what were his true options? Was it entirely a reckless move given the low likelihood? And he was uh, apparently given some assurance that there was a low likelihood of transmission and infecting others. For someone to jump into a commercial airliner receiving a severity of diagnosis such as he did, but not getting any word as to what he could do or what his options were in terms of getting back home and seeking adequate treatment. Was it a reckless move, do you think?
2: I'm sure that if we look back and see how well the options and the severity was communicated with him, we could answer that a little bit better. I do think that with the risk, however low, of transmitting an extremely dangerous organism that could then lead to much more widespread infection with the illness is absolutely no question that, low contagious or not, he should not have been on a commercial airliner. I guess we can speculate about how well he understood that or what his motivation was, but that's not really for us to do.
0: But it, it does uh, raise the question as to what his options might have been, having not flown back. They did mention a, putting the, the responsibility on his shoulders and his family's shoulders to fly back through a, a private airline On their own dime. And I'm not sure if that is a realistic measure that can be done for for patients in scenarios that might be like this in the future.
2: I think that that was speculation that uh, Mr. Speaker's family raised. Uh, CDC has its own aircraft. There are military aircraft that are set up for evacuation of people with hemorrhagic fevers. There's a pretty serious public health issue. I think that we as a nation could have stepped in to get him home and into safe treatment. And I don't know whether they jumped to conclusions or not, but I think that there were options available. It just may not have been made clear what they were, and the decisions may have taken a long time as, as people in government, sat around
0: and debated who was going to pay for it or who was going to authorize things. Okay, that is heartening to hear that there probably were options, at least perhaps from a military standpoint, to get him back. Dr. Petrasic, do you have any follow-up questions?
1: Yeah, I just, you know, uh, given that we have one such, you know, famous case now, you know, in the in the news headlines, what do you think the likelihood that there are a bunch of such folks running around in the United States, for example, unmonitored? I think that there is certainly...
2: A risk of it. We think that the incidence of XDR-TB so far is fairly low throughout the world, but given that there are some hot spots where one might acquire it, and given that the diagnosis of TB is often delayed, and sometimes when TB is diagnosed, an adequate specimen isn't obtained for culture and therefore for resistance testing, I think in the future we will see other importations or other endogenous cases of XDR-TB. Having said that, I think we can control them. I think we can decrease the spread and limit them. We know how to do that. We've done it with TB even before we had really good drugs. But it's going to take some investment both in drugs, detection, communication, and more than anything, in those basic TB control
0: measures that we talked about earlier. I do want to thank Dr. Andrew Pavia, our guest, as well as my co-host, Dr. Petrasic, for joining me today on this special news recap discussion of XDR-TB in relation to the case of patient Andrew Speaker. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. As always, we do look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.